I'm excited to explore the world and go traveling and have a career that I can do that I enjoy and that doesn't put me behind the desk. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and a host of your program. For those of you who don't know me, I am the mother of a sacral ventricle heart warrior. Alexander is now 27 years old and doing well. He is my inspiration and the reason I'm the host of your program. Today's show is New Heart, New Lease on Life, and our guest is Lori Hill. Lori Hill grew up in Texas, mostly Houston and Dallas. She was born with a single ventricle heart and has had four open heart surgeries in her 25 years, including a pulmonary artery band and bidirectional blend shunt. She was listed for a heart transplant on February 24, 2020. During this time, she graduated with honors from Texas A&M and moved to Houston to be closer to Texas Children's Hospital and to start her Master of Public Health degree. Unfortunately, due to increased symptoms and increased physical decline, Lori was admitted to the hospital in early February 2021 to finish the wait for her transplant. After seven weeks of being inpatient, Lori received her new heart on March 31st, 2021. After a bout of rejection and two biopsies in the first three and a half weeks post-transplant, Lori was able to go home and continue the recovery process there. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna, Lori. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here again. I'm happy to have you back on the program and it to be this title, that you got your heart. This is so Mm -hmm. exciting. You were on our show twice last year in March and then in the summer of 2020, and the whole world was shut down thanks to COVID-19. I'll put the links to Lori's previous shows in the show notes, everybody. The last show you were on was entitled Still Waiting for a Heart, and you were not in the hospital yet. So can you tell us about your wait for a heart in the hospital? I was admitted to the hospital because I was just doing really poorly at home. I could barely cook for myself, cooking for myself, do a whole lot. And my doctors and I and my family decided that it was time to get some extra help. So I went in on February 10th. And for those who are aware of Texas's big freeze that happened in February, <laughs> I was at Texas Children's for that. Oh my goodness. Um, so the funny story there is that TCH actually lost power for a few hours and had to run on generator power. And then we also lost water for 36 hours. So fun times at the hospital. The wait in the hospital was long, but I honestly didn't mind being there a whole lot because I just felt horrible all the time. And I knew that in the hospital, I could receive the help that I needed. And it was comforting knowing that I had medical professionals around me all the time in case something were to go wrong. So you said you were feeling horrible. I know from talking to multiple people who eventually needed a heart transplant, but maybe not all of our listeners know, feeling horrible can mean it's hard to brush your hair in the morning without feeling worn out or to take a shower or even just to walk down the hall. Is that how bad you were feeling? Yeah, I wouldn't say like brushing my hair or brushing my teeth, but a shower definitely knocked me out. Walking down the halls was pretty tough too. And for me, I did have reduced heart function, but it wasn't terribly, terribly reduced. 
And so for me, it was just the oxygenation. And I could just walk 20 yards and be in the low 70s or upper 60% saturations. And when that low, like even if your body has compensated for low oxygen, it's only going to handle it for so long. So my body was just done and it was done dealing with a lack of oxygen and it just zapped the energy out of me so fast. So when your energy is zapped like that, Lori, do you just want to sleep all the time or how does that affect you? Not necessarily sleep. It's a really interesting feeling because for me anyway, my brain was still going 100 miles a minute because it always (laughs) is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my body just felt so worn down. It almost felt like picking up a foot was like picking up a weight. And I was just walking around with weights on me, obviously, even though there wasn't any. And it just felt like I wanted to sit down or lay down all the time. I watched a lot of movies in that time. Disney Plus was my best friend. Um, (laughs) Watched all the Disney movies. That's kind of what horrible feels like in that sense. I spoke with one heart transplant recipient, and he told me that it felt like when he was walking, it was like walking through water, that just trying to take that next step was so hard for him. Yep. Water, weights, same difference. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think for those people who are like me, who have been fortunate enough to have a healthy heart, it's hard to even picture that. Yeah, I think that's why I would suggest getting a pair of ankle weights, just trying to walk around with them all day long. And then you would have a better idea. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's still not the same because I think that lack of oxygen wreaks havoc on your whole body. It's not just your legs. Yeah, for sure. And for me, I've never really had a whole lot of cognitive issues with my oxygen, thank goodness. But I did notice, since I'm a student, I write a lot of papers. And in that time, there was a lot of editing that was happening because I just couldn't spell right all the time. And they weren't typos where the key was next to the key that I wanted. It was like complete typos or misspellings and just like altered sentence structures and stuff like that. So it's really interesting to go back to my unedited papers then and see what it was like. It almost gives you a better idea of how you really were declining, even mentally. Yeah, Yeah, and honestly, I didn't even know in the time. Looking back, I realized how sick I was. But in the moment, it was such a gradual decline that you really don't notice it a whole lot. Do you think that your parents were able to notice it? Honestly, they didn't notice it a whole lot either until after. Because you have to think about that. I'd been living with low oxygen my entire life. And it was such a gradual decline until like the last six months that it was, that's how Lori is. I'm sure they were so happy to see you after the operation. But before we get there, I've been told that no matter how many days it is, or even hours, the wait for the heart can feel interminable. You said that you were a huge Disney Plus fan. What else were you able to do while you were waiting for your heart? I definitely spent a lot of time in bed, but mainly in a chair because hospital beds like to eat your muscles. So I tried to stay out of the bed as much as possible. But while I was waiting for the heart in the hospital, I actually 
kept taking classes, and people ask me why did you do that? And for me, education is my refuge. I really, really enjoy it. I love learning. I love doing homework and even taking exams and stuff like that. I'm a little odd in that way, but I do enjoy it. And so I took epidemiology three and a biostatistics class and. My professors knew me. They knew the situation. They knew I was probably going to go MIA in the middle of the semester, and they're like, "As long as you get through midterms, you won't have to drop the class." I was like, "Great, just gotta get through midterms." So the joke between me and the team was that I'm not allowed to get a heart until I take my midterms. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, I was afraid to ask. What were the midterms? <laughs> <laughs> the midterms were actually two weeks before transplant. So it happened perfectly. And while I was in the hospital, I also passed the time by worked with physical therapy mostly. And then also I became really close with the transplant team because you see them every day and you see the doctors and the PAs and the nurse practitioners. And so you start to gain friendships and relationships. And we all became really close. So even when they were done rounds or done charting, sometimes they would just pop in to chat, and it was really nice to have that friendship there. Because if you think about it, I've been kind of sequestering myself in my apartment for all of the pandemic, and I really haven't spent time with people my age or near my age. So going into the hospital, I had nurses my age all over the place, and some of the doctors aren't too much older than me, and so it was nice to be around people. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. In segment one, Lori, we brought everybody up to speed on your congenital heart defect and part of your transplant weight. At the top of the show, we heard that you were admitted in February and that you got your heart in March. So why don't you tell us about getting the call? So getting the call was really exciting. I got it towards the evening, actually. I was about to hop on a Zoom call with friends, and I was finishing up dinner. I had chicken strips and mashed potatoes that night. I will never forget it. Uh, (laughs) I love it. Yeah, super kitty meal. It was fun. And I was putting my tray over on the counter, and I was listening to music, hanging out. And one of my doctors walks in and just starts chit-chatting. And I'm like, this is interesting. Normally, they don't come in this late, but okay. 
And then one of my other doctors who is kind of the one that I formed the closest relationship with, she runs up and starts chatting with us. And I'm like, okay, this is really strange too. And the conversation kind of died down naturally. And then my main doctor was like, so we actually came in here to tell you we have a heart for you. Oh my gosh! Uh, I know. They waited I so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That should have been the first thing out of their mouths. <laughs> oh my gosh! I really think the first doctor was stalling for the second one because right. I think the second one really wanted to be there to tell me. Yeah, and I was kind of shocked, and I was like, "Am I number one on the offer, or number two, or something?" Like in the top five, because sometimes they'll tell you if you're in the top five, just in case the heart kind of gets rejected by different centers. And she's like, "Yeah, you're number one, and so far it looks good." Apparently, they had received the offer around 3 p.m. that day, and they told me around 6:30. And they I'm surprised already... they let you eat dinner. Well, the surgery wasn't going to be until the next day. Oh, so wow. yeah, the thing with transplant is. It seems like it would be a really fast process, yeah. but it wasn't. I didn't go into the OR until 11 a.m. the next day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And wow. so that night, they took a whole bunch of blood and did all kinds of testing. And I had a CAT scan to see where my heart was in relation to the sternum so they don't damage anything when they're going in. Sure, uh, sure. So I had all kinds of testing done, and then I went down to the pre-op area around 10 or so and then I went back around 11. Were your parents there or did you have any friends there with you? So since it was during COVID there were no friends allowed (laughs) but my mom was with me that day. Another funny story from that day is that she actually got her second COVID vaccine the morning that I got the call and so she had actually gone home about an hour before I got the call to just sleep off the side effects of the vaccine. And so I called her back and I'm like, so I got the call for a heart. And she's like, what? Yeah. And I'm like, things are going to move pretty slow. So you can come back tomorrow morning if you want. And she's like, well, no, I think I'm going to come back today because I spike a fever and they don't let me in. (laughs) Good idea. So (laughs) you came back. And my dad had actually been there the following weekend to visit me, and uh-huh. he lived in Dallas. And um, so I called him, too, and I'm like, hey, you know how you just drove back to Dallas <laughs> two days ago? You want to come back? <laughs> and so <laughs> he actually drove back the day of surgery because he didn't want to drive at night. So he pulled over to a Bucky's right before I went in, and he was there when I woke up. Wow. Oh my gosh. COVID has complicated everything, hasn't it? It has, but it has also been really great because there's no way I could have continued school or continued hanging out with friends while I was in the hospital if COVID wasn't a thing either. Because Zoom and Skype and WhatsApp and Snapchat, there are so many different avenues now that you're able to communicate. It really does make it easier, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You weren't alone. I'm glad to hear that because I don't think anyone should have to be alone going through all that. I know it's <laughs> a lot of testing and going from place to place. I imagine they put you in a wheelchair and didn't have you walking all those places. Is that yeah, yeah, good? Okay. Sure. I'm glad to know I'm not crazy. <laughs> so 
way I'm picturing no. this in my mind. No. Now, I know that everyone fears transplant rejection. And we know from the bio earlier in the show that you experienced some rejection. Can you tell us about that? Rejection is a thing that happens with transplants. And it's essentially when your immune system attacks the transplanted heart, in my case. Your immune system likes to attack anything it recognizes as not self. When you have a fresh organ in you, your immune system can kind of go haywire and want to attack it because it's not part of the body. Of course, I was afraid of rejection too. And while we were waiting, we were told it was treatable, but still just a fear. Like even if it's treatable, it's still a fear. I went back from my first biopsy two weeks after transplant and I had a grade of 2R. And acute rejection is graded on a scale from 0R to 3R. 0R being you have no rejection, 3R being you have some pretty good amount of rejection. And normally, transplant centers want to keep you at 0 or 1R. And my first biopsy was a 2R, and it was a pretty high 2R because even though they are graded, it's more of a continuum. Sure. So they treated me with four large doses of IV methylprednisone and then some immunoglobulins to try to knock out some more T-cells. T-cells are your ones that they recognize what is part of you and what is not. So what is self or part of you and what is not self, not part of you. Wouldn't it seem natural that anybody who gets any kind of transplant, that there would almost have to be a rejection response because wouldn't your body have to know that something's in there that's not yours? Yeah, it's especially a big problem with organs. So we know that rejection is a normal response of your body to a foreign organ. But we also know that there is a way to kind of fool the body into believing that it's okay. It's okay. We'll take this. We'll take this extra organ. So for you, they ended up giving you some mega doses of medication. Did it work? The first time? No. Obviously, since I said the first time, it did help decrease it. So after I had these massive doses of medication, we went back into the cath lab a week later to have another biopsy and that one was still at 2R but it was almost borderline 2R and 1R it was really close to being okay but the team was like you know what we're going to treat this anyway just to make sure we knock it out so I had three rounds of this is going to sound weird but I had rabbit antibodies put into me to help kill off more T-cells. I've never heard this before. And this is why I wanted you on the program, Lori, because a lot of people have never heard of things like this before. I've talked to a number of transplant recipients and nobody's Mm -hmm. ever talked about this. Is this something new? Yeah, it's called ATG and it's essentially rabbit antibodies. So I had three rounds of that. And after that, I was feeling great. And I was just wandering the halls all the time. And when I finished that third round, the doctors are like, okay, we're tired of seeing you just walk around the halls all day. So we're going <laughs> to let you go home <laughs> because there's no clinical reason to keep you here anymore. And I'm like, great. So after I got that third round, the next day, they observed me for 24 hours. And the next day, they let me go home. And I had to return in a week for a third biopsy. 
And that was a one R. So we were happy with that. And I got to go back home. I was home three days before that third biopsy. And so once we got the green light after that third biopsy, I really felt like I was at home. Okay. So when you were 2R, almost 3R, versus when you were given a green light, did you feel very different? Or if you hadn't had those biopsies, would you have been clueless? I did not feel different at all. I would have been pretty clueless. For me, the weirdest transition has been not knowing when my body has something wrong with it. Because when I had my CHD, I could feel everything. And I could kind of, not self-diagnose, but I could guess what was going on by the way that I felt. And with transplant, A, I haven't had it that long, so I haven't been able to establish those cues. And then two, a lot of it is on the cellular level. Mm -hmm. And especially if it's early on, you're not going to feel any different. So it's definitely been a strange transition. But yeah, I didn't feel different at all. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. So in a second segment, we learned about your body going through rejection and how finally success. And they said, go ahead and go home. We're tired of seeing you walking in halls, (laughs) (laughs) which is really a great way to go home. I think you're too healthy to be here. Go home. Mm -hmm. That's the dream. That's what we're all hoping for. And you and I were kind of in touch through Leslie Castro, but I got the feeling that you were really taking time that you needed to focus on you and on your recovery. So you weren't really doing social media. Can you tell us about what it was like those first few days at home and what kind of advice you might give others regarding social media and recovery? So I didn't do a lot of social media Facebook-wise, but I did actually post quite a bit on my Instagram that has been following my journey. But I did take a lot of time for myself when I was recovering, especially during the summer. When you come home, you're on all kinds of different medications. I was still having fluid retention issues. So I felt a lot better than I did going into the hospital, but I still didn't feel super great. So I was taking the time to adjust my new body, work out, try to test my limits, see what I can do now, and things like that, and just try to take care of myself. So did you feel that 
being a little bit disconnected from social media gave you the time to just really focus on yourself, test those limits like you were talking about without feeling like the whole world was watching you? Yeah, it was a nice thing. And also it just kind of gave me not really the freedom because social media is not a chain, but it kind of gave me the time to just better yourself and think through the changes that you've been through and the adjustment period. And also in the early days, I was back at the hospital like one to two days a week just for Mm -hmm. different testing and blood work and physical therapy. And another thing that they don't tell you a whole lot with transplant and especially long hospital stays is you lose so much muscle. I was so weak when I got home. I could barely step up on like a three-inch curb. So it was a little rough. It took me some time to build back muscle and feel like myself again. And I would post the milestones. So the day that I was able to walk a mile and a half without stopping for the first time and I don't know how long, I posted about that. Right. Do you think that was a healthy decision to make? Would you recommend other people do likewise? Yeah, I think so. I really think it depends on your relationship with social media because there are some really great communities, especially for young transplant people and especially on Instagram. You can almost troubleshoot on there. It's like if you're having a side effect, you can see, oh, has other people had this? Obviously, you talk to your doctors all the time, but it's kind of nice to be able to see that other people have gone through that as well. It's such a different experience from what most people go through because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are on the list who end up not getting their transplant or end up having some other options like an LVAD or something else. I mean, some people actually do get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's the hope is that if you don't get the transplant, that there'll be some other good, healthy alternative for you. Mm-hmm. So it's a small subset of the community, really, mm-hmm. who knows yeah. exactly what you've gone through. Right. And especially young people, because a lot of transplants are done in people who are like 40 plus years old. It's just a different stage of life than somebody who's in their 20s or early 30s. Is that why it was helpful for you to talk to Leslie? Yeah. And also I've made quite a few other friends like on social media. That's the way social media should be good is you find those connections. Most people know that transplant patients take a lot of medications for the rest of their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the different types of medication you take, what they do, and any side effects that you've experienced? The ones I will be taking for the rest of my life are tacrolimus, which is an anti-rejection medication. And sometimes the old version of tacrolimus was called cyclosporin. Mm-hmm. And that one had a larger side effect profile. So they keep most people on tacrolimus unless they can't handle it. And then another anti-rejection is called mycophenolate. And they keep you on that as well. The tacrolimus has to be within certain ranges. And so you have to get blood tests done for that to make sure you're in range. Mm-hmm. And the ranges change the farther you're out from transplant. As your body becomes friends with your new organ is how I like to describe it. Like <laughs> rejection medications. When I came home, I was on about 13 or 14 different prescription medications. Wow. And a lot of them were to prevent infection. So I was on antifungals, antibiotics, antivirals. Another big one that 
transplant patients get put on early on is a corticosteroid called prednisone. People take prednisone for all kinds of things, but transplant patients take it in massive doses for quite an extended period of time. I'm almost six months out from my transplant and I'm still on prednisone. (laughs) Oh, God bless you. I have to take prednisone when I get into poison ivy because I have a severe allergic reaction and that is a nasty tasting medicine. Yeah, well, not only nasty tasting, but it has some of the strangest side effects ever. Could you expound upon that a bit? Because I I only take it for poison ivy, so I'm only on it for 10 days at the most. But you've been taking it for months. What kind of side effects do you have? I have all of the side effects, it seems, or most of them anyway. (laughs) And so everything from like dry skin to weight gain to hair growth to troubles concentrating, name it, I have it. And one of the ones that I found out recently, it can cause increased eye pressures and it can cause cataracts. And I have both of those to a small extent. And so they were actually going to keep me on a higher dose for another month. And once I told my team about that, they're like, oh, just kidding. We're going to lower it again. Oh, wow. Well, that's (laughs) a good thing because the last thing you need to deal with is cataracts on top of all of this. Yeah. So I think because of that, and I am having pretty much all of the side effects, we're going to actually try to get me off soon. So hopefully it'll be done soon. I'm going to get back up just a second because you said something that I've never heard anybody say before. And you said something about once your body realizes the organ is your friend. I love that expression, but really? So after a while, your body just comes to accept that organ and you don't really need to worry about taking the mega doses of immunosuppressant drugs? Eventually your body is just like, okay, this organ is helping us. Let's not attack it as much. And so that's why I like to say it becomes better friends. So yes, you can lower the immune suppression a little bit over time. For example, right now I have to keep my tacrolimus levels between 10 and 12. When you're a year out, you can take it between like 8 and 10. So it's not like it decreases a ton, but it does decrease over time. Your body just kind of learns to live with the new organ. It's never going to fully accept it, but it's going to accept it a little bit more. It's not going to fight against it as much. So do you have to go in regularly for blood work? I mean, is that how they test the levels or is it only through biopsy that they can test the levels? Well, I was in the hospital, they were testing it every day. And then Mm -hmm. when I got home, they were testing it once a week to once every other week or something like that. And at this point, I've had six biopsies. The last four have been one hours. And so now they test my levels once a month or if I experience more side effects of the medication. So tacrolimus, the biggest side effect that it causes is tremors. If you look at my handwriting pre-transplant, post-transplant, you can definitely notice a difference because pre-transplant, I was not dealing with tremors. And the tremors were pretty bad at first, but you get used to them. And then also as they lower medication, they lower prednisone, they take you off different medications. It all gets better with time. <laughs> as medication's taken off and weaned and things like that, there's less interactions to happen and it gets better. That's my biggest saying for everybody. That's so good to hear because I know that you were really feeling 
so tired and you were feeling fuzzy with your memory. And I remember you saying you weren't able to volunteer with me because it was taking every bit of energy you had just to make it through school. And now you're back to helping out every now and then, which is awesome. In fact, now when you can't help me, it's not because you're too tired. It's because you're too darn busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a nice change. (laughs) It is an excellent change. But before we conclude this show, Lori, can you share with us any plans that you might have for your future and tell us a little bit about how the outlook for your future has changed since transplant? My outlook on my future has kind of done a 180 (laughs) since transplant. So I have always wanted to work on the clinical side of medicine, patient care, and I kind of gave that up in the middle of college when I really started down the heart failure journey. So I went a more academic research route, which I still love. And that's why I'm getting my master's of public health. But now after spending 10 and a half weeks in the hospital and seeing how different medical professionals like interact and what they do, I'm looking into different clinical options on things to do after my public health degree. And also, this new lease on life gives me the ability to travel. I've never been to Colorado or national parks because I couldn't handle altitude. I couldn't walk. So there was no reason to go there. And now I have multiple friends and family members who are like, yeah, let's go to Colorado and go hiking. I'm like, that sounds great. <laughs> and so different things like that. I'm excited to explore the world and go traveling and have a career that I can do that I enjoy and that doesn't put me behind the desk. Yeah, you don't want to be sitting if you can be up moving around now, right? For sure. I think that's awesome. Do you think you might explore possibly going back and doing the physical therapy or kinesiology, which you were studying when I first met you? What I was really intrigued by in the hospital, and I'm going to do some shadowing, hopefully in the spring if COVID's not too bad, was physician assistants. And physician assistants are very in demand right now, and they will be in the future as well. So that's kind of the route I'm looking into. But I also haven't ruled out physical therapy because it was my first love of clinical specialties. Well, I'm just so happy to hear you sounding so happy. Thank you so much for coming back on the program, Lori. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have this really positive outlook on transplant. It's something that so many of us in the congenital heart defect community fear. And you've taken a little bit of that fear away by explaining to us what your experience was like. Yeah, that's why I really gone the extra mile to share the whole journey, really. And I captured it in pictures and posted it on the internet, on Instagram for people to find and look through. And I absolutely love that. Thank you so much. And that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave us a note about what kind of programs you would like to hear in the future. You can do that on our Heart to Heart with Anna Facebook page or Instagram page or our VIP Facebook group. We have so many different places that you can reach out to us. I love hearing from you. Let me know what episodes you like and why. That helps me in planning shows for the future. Have a great day, my friends. And remember, 
you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.